Last week, uh, if you were here or if you listened to the audio, you noticed that I opened up the nerdy floodgates, right? And I I opened with uh, a few references from Star Wars and from Star Trek, Lord of the Rings, and even Harry Potter. And I'll be honest with you guys. For the, uh, once those gates are open, it's hard for me to close them. Right? I just I can't help myself. So, in the spirit of my endearing dorkiness, uh, let me first uh, begin by asking you to join me in celebration, because yesterday was the anniversary of the destruction of the One Ring in the year 3019 of the Third Age of Middle Earth. Right? So, hallelujah, the evil has been defeated. But then second, I actually do want to connect our psalm. I'm going to stick on a Lord of the Rings kick, right? Uh, I actually do want to connect our psalm with a wonderful scene from The Two Towers being, as Tolkien called it, the second part of The Lord of the Rings. Here is my beloved copy of The Two Towers. So now, whether you are familiar with the movies or the books or both, you're probably fairly familiar with The Battle of Helm's Deep. Now, for those that have not read the books or watched the movies, I cannot implore you enough to do one 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 or the other, but do both. Uh, But read the books first. But to give you some context, uh, the people of Rohan, which is a land in Middle-earth, have taken refuge in a fortress called Helm's Deep that has been carved into the cleft of the mountains. You can already see Tolkien's spiritual significance that he's throwing at here, right? So while these names won't mean anything to you, allow me to give them to you. Um, Aragorn the man, Gimli the dwarf, and Legolas the elf have joined the people of Rohan to protect them from the evil forces of Sauron. While Gandalf the White Wizard, in his usual fashion, when things are about to get squirrely, he leaves to tend to what he calls, quote, a swift errand. And he, you know, rides off onto Shadowfax, the horse. And so night begins to approach, and as night approaches, so does the 10,000-strong army of orcs and Urukai from Sauron. And they seek to destroy and kill the good people of Rohan. They're outnumbered. So through the night, the battle rages on. Storms begin to happen. Volleys of arrows come over the walls. Many soldiers of Rohan die. And by the early morning hours, the outer fortress itself had been taken. Needless to say, all seemed to be completely lost. And it appeared that evil had won. And so King Theoden, king of Rohan, mounts his horse and calls his guard to him and prepares to ride out one last time, fully expecting to be killed in the onslaught. And then we read this at the end of the chapter. And I promise I will make the connection. So here's what we read, if you'll bear with me for a moment. So King Theoden rode from Helm's Gate and clove his path up to the great dike. But there the company halted. Light grew bright about them. Shafts of the sun flared above the eastern hills and glimmered on their spears. But they sat silent on their horses, and they gazed down upon the deepening coom. The land had changed. Where before the green dale had lain in its grassy slopes lapping the ever-mounting hills, there now a forest loomed. Great trees, bare and silent, stood rank upon rank. With tangled bough and hoary head, their twisted roots buried in the long green grass, and darkness was underneath them. Between the dike and the eaves of the nameless wood, only two open furlongs lay. There now cowered the proud hosts of Sauron, in the terror of the king and in the terror of the trees. 
They streamed down from Helm's Gate until all above the dike was empty of them, but below it they were packed like swarming flies. Vainly they crawled and clamored about the walls of the coom, seeking to escape. Upon the east, too sheer and stony was the valley side, and upon the left, from the west, their final doom approached. For there suddenly appeared upon the ridge a, a rider, clad in white, shining with the rising of the sun. Over the low hills, the horns were sounding. Behind him, hastening down the slopes, were a thousand men on foot, their swords in their hands. Aragorn cries, Behold, the white rider, Gandalf, has come again. The host of Isengard roared, swaying this way and that, turning from fear to fear. Again, the horn sounded from the tower. Down through the breach of the dike charged the king's company. Down from the hills leapt the lord of the Westfold. Down leapt Shadowfax like a deer that runs sure-footed in the mountains. The white rider was upon them, and the terror of his coming filled the enemy with madness. The wild men fell upon their faces before him. The orcs reeled and screamed and cast aside both sword and spear. And like a black smoke driven by a mounting wind, they fled. Wailing, they passed under the waiting shadow of the trees. And from that shadow, none ever came again. I read this chapter again this week, partly because I love it, but also partly because of how really I was reading through Psalm 130 over the course of this past week and realized that this scene really describes our spiritual predicament. Because we too are like the king who is taking refuge in the cleft of the rocks, waiting for our rescue from the white rider upon the hill and the shining of the sun. And thinking about this predicament, we then come to Psalm 130. Where the psalmist writes, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait upon the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. Well, I know I've mentioned this a few times over the last few weeks, but, but Lent, the season of Lent, is, is a, it's a hard season. Because it's a season where, like our Lord Jesus, we are thrown into the wilderness. We are enduring attacks from what appears to be an overwhelming force of the enemy. Lent is a season where we are reminded very vividly of our own mortality and our need for God himself to intervene on our behalf. Now today is our final quote-unquote regular Sunday in the season of Lent because, believe it or not, next week is Palm Sunday. We're already upon Holy Week. So for us, the passion of the Lord Jesus looms on the horizon. 
reminding us, really, of the deep despair and sorrow that death brings with it, especially when he comes for the one who came to bring life. And so as we've done over the last few weeks, let me just walk through this psalm, draw some attention to some meditative qualities as we've been talking about meditating and contemplating these scriptures. And then we will actually go through all eight verses and pick up on the details and how these meditative points help us. So first, just a few meditative points. I have four. First, note that just like Psalm 121, where we began a few weeks ago in the season of Lent, this is also a psalm of ascent. And this actually nicely bookends our time in the Psalms through our regular Sundays of Lent. So it's almost, at least for me, I was thinking, it's almost as if Psalm 121 leads us up into the hills of the wilderness, whereas Psalm 130 leads us up the hill of the Lord to come closer to the cross of the Lord Jesus. So at the same time, this is also, though, a psalm of repentance, which is one of the major practices of the season of Lent. Psalm 130, much like our other psalms that we've seen over the last few weeks, reminds us where our hope in life and death must rest. And it calls us, like Psalm 95 did, to not harden our hearts, but rather to call upon the one who both forgives and forgets our sin. A second point here is that this psalm is both individual and communal in its focus. This also really nicely ties our psalms together. Because we started with a multi-focused audience in Psalm 121. And then in Psalm 95, we moved to a communal audience. Then last week in Psalm 23, an individual audience. And then now we are back to a multi-focused one in Psalm 130. Third, building upon that theme of repentance, we can actually note a few repeated words and phrases throughout the psalm. And you probably picked up on them as we were reading them. So like Psalm 95, there is a repetition of the word voice in this psalm. Except this time, we are actually asking Yahweh to hear our voice when we cry out to him. Whereas Psalm 95 called us to hear the voice of the Lord. There's also a repetition of the word iniquities or iniquity. Reminding us who has the power and authority to deal with, to forget, and forgive our sins. There's also a repetition in the final sections of this passage of both The words waiting in verses 5 and 6 and the word hope in 5 through 8, reminding us that we are to wait upon the Lord and hope in him for complete redemption and forgiveness. And fourth, finally, and interestingly, there are two different names used for God in this psalm. And our English translations don't really lend lend themselves to helping us see this. But the two names used throughout this entire psalm are the names Yahweh and Adonai, which for most Hebrew speakers, they would just say Adonai instead of Yahweh, lest they take Yahweh's name in vain. But there is a difference. So before we actually look at the details of the psalm, let me give you the difference, because I think it is really helpful in helping us to understand and meditate and pray through this psalm. So Yahweh is a name that you should be very familiar with by this point in the season of Lent. Right? It's, we've discussed this multiple times so far over the last few weeks, but Yahweh is God's covenant name. This is the name that he reveals to Moses and he gives to his people. Yahweh is the name by which God's covenant promises are upheld because he swears by himself and he reveals himself to his people by giving them his name. But Adonai is a name that intentionally refers to God's ruling authority. So while we have discussed God's authority over us because he is our creator, 
Adonai refers particularly to God's authority over us as our master or as our Lord. In the Greek, this would be the word kyrios. This is the same word that we give to Christ when we call him the Lord Jesus. He is our master. As we make our way through the psalm this morning, what I'm going to do then as we reread through it, I'm just going to plug in those names where they belong. And I think it will really help us see how it applies and how it's helpful. So beginning then in verses 1 and 2, we read this. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Yahweh. O Adonai, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. So immediately I think you can see how highlighting these different names help us to interpret this psalm and how we understand this psalm. So just consider how this emphasizes what we've looked at so far in the Psalms this Lent, as well as really this theme of death and dying that we saw last week in Psalm 23. We come here and we read, Out of the depths of the valley of the shadow of death, I cry to you, O Yahweh, my covenant God. O Adonai, my master, hear me. Adonai, my master, hear my cries. Master, hear my voice. Master, please turn your attention to me and be merciful. These are not superficial cries for help. As we reflect and meditate upon the disciplines of repentance and death throughout the season of Lent, we come to understand that our cries for mercy come from a place of complete and total depravity and complete dependence upon a God who has the authority to do something about it. Paul reminds the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following after the power, the prince of the power of the air, following the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And then he says, among whom we were all living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But the best conjunction in scripture, but God, who is rich in mercy with Great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By his grace, you have been saved. So, keeping in mind that this psalm, while it is a psalm of ascent, it is also a psalm of lament over the complete and total depravity of our sinful condition without the Lord Jesus Christ. And the psalmist reminds us here in these first two verses that without Christ, we are in the depths. We are in a place of extreme danger. To the godly, our sin and our guilt being thrust into the Lenten wilderness of testing and temptation is like being cast into the depths. It's like being thrown into the valley of the shadow of death because we know that our sin alienates us from Yahweh, who is our master. One commentator writes here, and he helpfully states this. He says, though this is a psalm of ascent, It actually intentionally begins with descent, reminding us that from the depths of our total depravity, there is nothing that we can do under our own power or under our own effort to climb out of the depths. Instead, the only thing we can do is wait upon, cry out to, and hope in Yahweh our Adonai and hope that he will do something about it. And this theme of waiting starts then to be woven through this entire psalm. So thinking out of the context of being thrust into the depths or crying out from the depths of extreme danger, this idea of waiting is a very relaxing posture that we're being asked to assume here. 
Because every one of us has a natural fight or flight response when it comes to danger. Right? Some of us want to turn tail and flee to get out of danger. And some of us want to turn the other way and put up our fists and fight it. Right? It's, just, it's just a natural reaction. The other day I, I was watching YouTube videos and wasting time. But I came across a really interesting video of this guy who was hiking somewhere out west. And as he was hiking, he came, uh, a cougar came across him. And, which is a scary situation all of it on its own, right? I mean, he's alone on this hiking trail. And throughout the video, he was trying to do the things you do to scare off a predatory animal like that, right? He was being loud. He was um, making himself bigger. And for some dumb reason, he also had his phone out. Uh, but um, he had his phone out. But regardless of what he tried to do, the cougar continued to pursue him. And it kept making threatening gestures at him. And it lunged at him at one point in the video. It was terrifying to watch. I'm glad I was at home on my couch and not on this hiking trail. But now we do know, though, that since the video has been uploaded, he obviously made it out of the situation. He was not live streaming this. He made it out reminding us that anytime you might be in danger, just pull your phone out and start recording because the cameraman always survives. Right? But... But his response to this danger is actually very helpful in illustrating this point here of what the psalmist is calling us to. Because when we are in danger, when, when, when death is threatening to overtake us, we naturally place ourselves in a posture or in a position to try and to survive. But the psalmist here in verses 1 and 2 is, is at the very beginning of this entire psalm is telling us, he says, From the extreme danger of the valley of the shadow of death, you can't do anything. You have no power. You can't redeem yourself. You can't forgive your own sins. You can't justify yourselves before God. All you can do is cry out, wait upon, hope in, and have faith that God, Yahweh, your Adonai, will act. And so then we come to verses 3 and 4, and we see that when Yahweh does act, he does so in order to redeem his own. This is how we sang it in our hymn this morning. Because he is Yahweh, our master, who does hear our pleas for mercy. And so the psalmist says, If you, O Yahweh, should mark iniquities, O Adonai, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. So very clearly, what, note, note what we can take just from these verses. There is no hope of delivery from the depths without the intervention of Yahweh, our Adonai, through the work of Christ Jesus our Lord. And But pay attention to what the psalmist is declaring about the mercy of God here in these two verses alone. The mercy of God is found in his forgiveness. He says, with you there is forgiveness so that you may be feared. This psalm tells us that Yahweh does not mark iniquities, meaning that he does not keep a record of or a ledger of our sins, telling us that when our sins are forgiven in Christ, they are forgotten in Christ. So again, keep in mind the different names that the psalmist is using to draw upon for God here. If Yahweh, our covenant God who has love and has mercy and has faithfulness to those whom he has covenanted with, if Yahweh were to keep a record of our sins, if he were to continue to keep a record of our sins, in order to always hold us accountable for them, 
then even the most godly person who has ever lived could not stand in his presence. But the psalmist, he immediately tells us, he says, we have hope because Yahweh, our covenant God, who is full of steadfast love, does not keep a record of our sins. Adonai, our master, forgives them and forgets them in Christ Jesus. In Isaiah 43, 25, God proclaims this. He says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. In Jeremiah 31, Yahweh tells Jeremiah about the new covenant. He says, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. And then in 1 John 1, 9, just assuming that this is only Old Testament, John tells us in 1 John 1, 9 that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so because Yahweh, our Adonai, is a God who is full of forgiveness, he is a God who is to be feared, the psalmist tells us. Just consider the wisdom of what he's calling us to here. God's mercy helps us to be wise by cultivating a proper fear and a proper knowledge of Yahweh, who is our master. Solomon tells us twice in the Proverbs, in Proverbs 1 and in Proverbs 9, that the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Yahweh is to be feared because he is the only one who has the authority as master to judge our sins. But he is also to be feared because he is the only one who has the authority as our master to forgive us of our sins. And both of these works, his judgment and his forgiveness, have been completely accomplished in the death and the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus. The very reason why we gather and worship and the very purpose for which the season of Lent prepares us to celebrate. Peter proclaims to us in 1 Peter 1, he says, If you call upon God as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, then conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ which is like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you, who through Christ you are now believers in God, God who raised Christ from the dead, and God who gave Christ glory so that your faith and hope are in God through Christ. If you, O Yahweh, should mark iniquities, Then, O Adonai, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be rightly feared. And so I wait for Yahweh, he says in verse 5. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for Adonai more than watchman for the morning. Yes, more than watchman for the morning. Notice, very explicitly now, coming to verses 5 and 6, that this theme of waiting really reaches its apex, right? Because we're waiting on Yahweh our Adonai. This is front and center in these two verses. 
From our desperate state of depravity of verses 1 and 2, we cry out to God, who is our master from the depths, knowing that only he has the authority and the covenant love to judge and forgive our sins. And so the psalmist reminds us to simply wait on him, wait on him to act, wait on him to hear, wait on him to forgive. But at the same time, in these verses, don't miss the hope that he reminds us of in our waiting. We have hope in waiting. Waiting upon Yahweh our master is not a hopeless waiting. It's not a waiting done in vain. It is done and it waits resting upon the promises that Yahweh our master has already presented to us in his word. He says again in verse 5, I wait for Yahweh my soul waits and in his word I hope. Jesus speaks directly to this in John 14. He tells the disciples, he says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. If you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. And if it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place, then I will come again and take you to myself, so that where I am, you may also be. Jesus is calling upon us to trust in his word. And this is the exact same thing that the psalmist is reminding us of. Consider how this speaks to the importance of discipleship in the church. God tells Moses to tell the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 6, he says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And you shall teach these words diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way. And when you lie down and when you rise, and you shall bind my words as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes, and you shall write my words on the doorpost of your house and on your gate. Without good orthodox teaching and discipleship, a believer can easily become discouraged and dismayed, forgetting the covenant promises of Yahweh our God from his word, Because they have either forgotten it or they have never properly been taught his word. And therefore, they have no assurance in Yahweh, our master. Because our assurance of his promises come from his word. And because they do, they confirm for us that redemption is only found in Yahweh, our Adonai. Yahweh's promises from his word are so trustworthy and so true and so completely absolute that like a watchman who waits for and has certainty in the coming of the sun rising, we can be certain that God does hear our pleas for mercy and he does forgive our sins and our souls can simply rest in and wait for the certainty of his promises to be accomplished. Augustine takes this even further, and he rightly interprets these two verses in light of the resurrection of Christ. He says this. He says, in the resurrection, which the Gospels tell us is at the very first of the morning, the church is now perched, watching for the first glimpse of the dawn of the resurrection and of God's renewal of all creation. What Augustine is describing here is our exact posture throughout the season of Lent. We are very vividly the watchmen on the wall waiting for resurrection morning. During Lent, our souls wait and hope for the dawning of resurrection Sunday, knowing that with its coming, 
also comes the assurance of our salvation. Because with the dawning of the resurrection, God's promises, his judgment against sin, his forgiveness of sins are all confirmed by the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We read this in in Sunday school this morning, and I added it to my notes while we were sitting there. In Acts 17, Paul proclaims this in his his, um, sermon on Mars Hill. He says this in verses 30 and 31. He says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to everyone By raising him from the dead. All of the promises of God are confirmed in his word, written and incarnate in Christ Jesus the Lord. And it is only in Christ that we have assurance that God's covenant, loyal, love, and forgiveness are trustworthy to begin with. And if we hope in and we rest in the promises that he has given us in his word, both written and and confirmed by his word made flesh, then our souls can rest assured that his promises are absolute. He says, I wait for Yahweh, my soul waits, and I hope in his word. And so, O Israel, he he concludes here, O Israel, hope in Yahweh. For with Yahweh there is steadfast love. And with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all of his iniquities. Notice, now this is where the psalmist now draws our attention back to the whole nation. It's been an individual focus through the entire psalm until this point. And so he tells us, as the entire covenant people of God, with Yahweh, your God, there is steadfast love, as well as abundant or plentiful redemption. This steadfast love, this plentiful redemption, these are unmerited favors. These are things we cannot earn. These are things which Yahweh sovereignly and lovingly bestows upon his people. And again, calling upon God from his covenant name tells us that he is our God and we are his people. We belong to him. And this also reminds us at the end of Psalm 23 from last week that even in the midst of the presence of our enemies, Yahweh has prepared for us a banquet table that is abundant and it is nourishing And it is full of his love and his faithfulness. It is full of his pursuit of us from this time forth and forevermore. Yahweh's plentiful redemption calls us as the entire church to remember that Yahweh's redemption is so great and so full and so plentiful that it forgives all of our sins. It is an assured promise. The psalmist says here, Yahweh will redeem his people from all of their sins. Not Yahweh might redeem you from some of them, but he will from all of them. Calvin writes here and he says, the psalmist describes this redemption as plenteous so that the faithful, even when we are reduced to our last limit or when we are at the end of our rope, that this plenteous redemption might sustain us with this thought that in the hands of God, are incredible means by which to save us. So today, church, hope in Yahweh, our master, because with him there is steadfast love, and he is attentive to our cries and to our pleas for mercy. 
And he has heard them in the death and the resurrection of Christ. Hope in his word. Rest in the promises that he has proclaimed to us in his word. Because he has confirmed them by the death and the resurrection of Christ. And through his death and resurrection, there is plentiful and abundant redemption. So wait upon the Lord. Renew your strength. Because with him, there is forgiveness and there is life. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen.